Welcome to the Keeney Interviews. Through this series, you will meet leading practitioners from the water sector and hear their stories. Together, we will address water challenges and discuss how best to face them. Keeney is the Malaysian word for current, and this initiative promotes the flow of ideas within the water sector. Hello, I'm Karen Delfo, and today's Kinney interview takes a different track than previous interviews. Today's interview is with Xenia Tata, who is the executive director in charge of global expansion at XPRIZE. You're probably asking yourself right now, what is XPRIZE? Let me explain. So DFAT, the Department for Foreign Affairs and Trade in Australia, has partnered with XPRIZE to solicit engagement in the Water Abundance XPRIZE, which is a $1.775 million competition that challenges teams to alleviate the global water crisis with energy-efficient technologies that harvest fresh water from thin air. Teams work together to revolutionize access to fresh water by creating a device that extracts a minimum of 2,000 liters of water per day from the atmosphere using 100% renewable energy at a cost of no more than two cents per liter. When I first heard about this prize, I was a little bit skeptical that it was possible, but I have to admit, after speaking with Xenia, I think we can even do more. So, very exciting. Xenia's areas of expertise include program design, management, and business development for non-for-profit organizations and social enterprises. Her work has spanned 20 countries in Asia, Africa, and Central America. Xenia has worked on solutions for diverse global issues, including water and food scarcity, economic enhancement, climate change, land rights, healthcare, education, and child welfare. So prior to this interview, I had a look at Xenia's TED Talk, which I highly recommend. Uh, that you have a look at in addition to listening to this interview. And I'm always trying to push boundaries both in my personal life and my professional life. And I'm trying to think outside the square. And the TED Talk and this interview with Xenia has been transformative for me in this regard. This hour-long interview covers a lot of ground, a lot of time, and also a lot of space. Um, We discuss moonshots. We explore what innovation really means and the concepts of radical and exponential innovation and what this means in terms of water scarcity challenges and how this can actually help improve humanity more broadly. Among other things, Xenia explains futuristic thinking, road mapping the future, and using backcasting as a technique to achieve a sustainable future vision for the world. <laughs> she also shares the blogs that she follows, which I know I'm going to be reading from now on also, in order to continue this way of thinking and seeing the world and tackling systemic complex challenges, both within the area of water management and more broadly around sustainable development goals. It's wonderful resources she provides us with. My conversation with her was really quite awe-inspiring and it was personally transformative, as I mentioned, and I hope that each of you listening will also gain tremendously from the thinking that Xenia shares with us in this interview. So before I finish up this intro, I'd like to quickly share with you the link to the Water Abundance X Prize, which is www.water.xprize.org. And with that, I'd like to invite you to enjoy this Kinney interview with Xenia Tata. Start recording now. So thank you very much for 
coming on as a Kinney interviewee. It's really great to speak with you. Um, I'm hoping, Zenia, that you can start by speaking a bit about your background and um, your history and how you got involved in water and innovation more broadly. Certainly. Thank you so much for having me, Karen. Um, I got involved in innovation fairly early um, in my life. I, I think I was always attracted to new and different technologies. Um, I, I, I always had uh, a panache for, for um, trying different and new things. Uh, growing up in India, um, I started taking flying lessons when I was 18 years old and 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 got got my license early on in my life. Uh, it was something I always wanted to do. I, I I actually was fascinated with space, and I was fascinated with with technology that gets you there. But that seemed so completely out of reach that flying a little uh, single prop Cessna seemed a little <laughs> little more within reach uh, for for my life. So I was always fascinated again by technology and innovations. However, I come from a background. Uh, family background that was very um, uh, was was a group of social activists who very much promoted activism and and wanted uh, uh, to make a difference in society and that was very much part of my my growing up. My grandmother was was a big influence in my life in that regard, and so I always kind of wanted to marry the two, but it didn't really this this kind of union didn't really take place till till say much later in my twenties when I realized that technology is a great enabler for having big change in the world and for being able to take those big bold steps. My love affair with sorry, go ahead. I'm just I just want to back up because I'm thinking about yes. the fact that you learned how to fly airplanes when you're 18 years old and how just being up in the sky and getting a different perspective, things flying your own plane, how how amazing that must have been for you in terms of your thought process and designing the approach that you wanted to, I don't know, lead your life into in a sense, just that must have been just really amazing. So it's- it was when, 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 you know, in the early days when you weren't terrified, yes, it was <laughs> when you actually dared to look away from your instruments and, and, and out your windshield. Yes, it was very beautiful. And you're right. It is a whole new perspective, but more than anything else, it was tremendously empowering. I mean, it, I, and I have a friend um, who said this to me once many, many years ago, and uh, and she's she's a you know more recent uh, friend, like a, an an adult friend, somebody I met in America, and she had learned how to fly as as a young woman too, and she said that you know how it changed her life. Uh, she doesn't fly anymore or anything, but what she said it was just that every woman if she really needs a boost of confidence, should take a few flying lessons, you know, because it's, it's just the most amazing and empowering thing to, to do. And I really believe that. 
It really was. It was it was a kick in the pants, you know, and it really showed me again growing up in India in the 80s. Um, it, it really kind of showed me that, yeah, we can. Yes, we can. You know, we I can do more. It, it didn't give me an edge of arrogance or anything, but it certainly gave me uh, a tremendous boost of confidence. And you're right, a completely different perspective, because Again, growing up the way I did, you know, uh, sports weren't really for women and athleticism wasn't really for women and technology wasn't quite for women either. Although now that is completely changed in India and you see as many women in engineering colleges as you see guys, you know. So even more so in India than other countries, actually, huh? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't see them in the workplace yet. You see them in college, but then they drop off. They're still getting married off and not going back to work, you know, and not going to work in that sense. So, but it's all changing. It's all changing. But that's why flying for me was very empowering and also differentiating in in a country of a billion people. I I grew up in, in, um, in a in a, in a joint family, you know, so we were we were anywhere from 12 to 17 people in an apartment when I was growing up. Um, and how do you stand out? How do you differentiate? Not for society, because that's not a good thing in India. You know, at least when I was growing up, you don't you don't want to be the tall grass. Uh, uh, but how do you differentiate yourself uh, for yourself? And that was the other empowering and confidence building thing about flying. It's it's really been my dream for pretty much ever since I was a little girl to learn how to fly. And um, so I'm actually feeling quite inspired and hoping to take that up at some point. You know, Karen, don't don't uh, don't waste any time. Just do it. It just take a few flying lessons. It doesn't matter. My license isn't current. I haven't flown in a long time. I'm going to get it current again as soon as I have a little bit of time, you know. But just do it. Just take a few lessons, you know. And, and now things have become so much easier. In like 40 hours, you could get a, a sports pilot license. Just do it. All right. All right. Um, so uh, this idea of 90% of the resources going towards innovation to support 10% of the population, to me, seems counterintuitive, especially when there are so many tremendous global issues that could be solved through innovation. And I'm hoping you can explain maybe, first of all, why that's happening, and then furthermore, a little bit about what approach XPRIZE is taking to change that whole that whole approach. Absolutely. So, um, when I talk about the 90-10 ratio, I'm really talking mostly about the kinds of innovations that are radical, that are groundbreaking, that really would would sort of shift the trajectory of, of humanity in, in a lot of ways. Um, I'm not talking about what we would call in India Jugad innovations, right? The, the, the kind of, you know, grassroots level um, um quick fixes and that's not exactly innovation either but but that's that's not what i'm talking about when i'm talking about the 9010 and you're right a lot of it is due to resources uh some of these innovations take a lot of investment 
uh, the R&D periods are longer. And, uh, and so because the investment is greater, it is designed for a market that can afford a lot of this, that can afford to, to jump in and, and buy these things uh, very quickly. And uh, rather than having a 10 or 20 year go, go to market cycle, which frankly, in today's world doesn't work because of the, the exponential pace of change that, that we're all experiencing. Um, uh, and the extreme digitization, the extreme uh, um, uh, access to information. So the, no longer does anybody have the luxury of having these long go-to-market cycles. So yes, that is why a lot of higher innovation is happening. A lot of more, more science and engineering-based te- technology is, is being created for the people who can, can afford it. What, how, I'm just curious, yeah. how would you actually define innovation? <laughs> It's a tricky th- question, actually, because it is an overused word, isn't yes. it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm realizing so, that my paradigm of innovation is is probably is a misinterpretation of what innovation truly is, which is right. great right. to learn about. So what, the way I define innovation in the context of the work that we are doing at XPRIZE is I define innovation as a moonshot, as something that is audacious, extremely audacious, but yet can be achieved. I describe uh, the kind of innovation uh, that we're involved in as as, uh, something that is unique, something that uh, um, may combine different kinds of, of of learnings and findings together to create something very, very different. And that really has big impact in the world. However, not all of it will have immediate impact in the world. And that is where the 90-10 ratio plays in. So, with some of the innovations that are really audacious, something that really is seemingly impossible, but can really be possible. Uh, With some of those innovations, again, the life cycle, the R&D cycle, the investment is so big that it, you know, it, it is really catering to a very exclusive market. And that market is not necessarily, uh, you know, uh, uh, a direct consumer. That market could be a government. And that's where we are hoping to shift the paradigm as well, that what kind of innovation can, can reach people really quickly. And that's where the example of our water abundance X prize comes in. Did I answer your question on, on how I'm describing innovation? Yes, I, I think that um, okay. from, from your description, I'm seeing innovation as something that just is transformative. Something it's that, transformative, yeah, thank you. Something yeah. that like, yeah. in a sense, questions or puts into question the mental models that we have of how things around us should work because all of a sudden we can have space stations or we can, for example, pull water out of thin air using renewable energy for a significant population. We, we can do these things and there needs to be investment that directs that whole process as opposed to um, 
instead of little innovations, which may be exactly, I don't know, I mean, technological so, so the innovations, way... which are perceived as being innovations, but that's not what you're talking about. You're talking no, about that's not what I'm talking huge. about. I'm talking about something huge. So the way the way I would differentiate it is there are incremental innovations and then there are exponential innovations. Uh-huh. So an incremental innovation is is just exactly as it sounds right. Step by step. That's how we get to go. Right. But an but an exponential innovation is that each step is a culmination of um, all the amazing things that have not just happened in the last step, but all the new information that's out in the world. So it's a leap forward every time. It's a leap forward. Uh, our founder, Peter Diamandis, explains this uh, in a beautiful way, uh, uh, what exponential and exponentiality actually feels like. So uh, take 20 steps across your room right now. Just look at the room you're sitting in. Where would you be if you took 30 steps, right? One, two, three, four, up to 30. Well, where I'm sitting right now, I'm going to be outside, uh, um, outside my porch, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be under the tree that's in front of my house. Okay, that's linear steps, 30 linear steps. Where would you be, Karen, if you think of it, where would you be right now if you took 30 exponential steps right from where you're sitting right oh, now? I would probably What's- be in Spain. <laughs> You'd be in Spain. That's you what you think. Okay. It's like... Okay. So yeah. So it's like one, two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64, right? You get the idea. Okay. You would not be in Spain, Karen. No, you would be, you would have traversed 26 times around the surface of the earth, 26 times around our planet. Wow. That's how far 30 exponential steps would take you. This is the power of exponentiality. This is the power of exponential thinking. This is the power of exponential innovation. It is not incremental. It is not linear. Does that feel different? Yes. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So that's the kind of innovation we're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so the 90-10 ratio then isn't so far off, right? I mean, it isn't isn't so bad because you can understand that sometimes that's what it takes. That it takes that kind of craziness, that kind of crazy thinking, that kind of the, the investment to come up with those sorts of exponential innovations. However, how can we then quickly translate that to really benefit the other 90%? That's the work that we are now focusing on at XPRIZE. So the Water Abundance XPRIZE that we launched um, with, with Australian Aid and the Tata Group, for example, that particular prize has some exponential elements to it, has a, a huge amount of audacity to it. You know, 2,000 liters a day, a machine that, that generates 2,000 liters of water in a 24-hour period using only renewable energy that can sit on the top of a water tank any parts of the world and gravity feed it, whether it's in a village, whether it's a densely populated urban area. And can do this 
at a cost of no more than two cents a liter. That's what will get this out into market. That's what will make this extremely affordable to the millions of people. Actually, I correct myself, the billions of people who are going to be living in water scarce areas by the year 2025. How, how, do, is there, how do you even get started with something this exponential? I mean, is there a process for this kind of innovation? Are there key elements? Are there partnerships? How, how do you even start to tackle something yes. so huge yes. and so important? Yes, to all the above. Uh, absolutely. This is a process. This is a deep process. So um, in in India, we have a phrase. It's called Jugard. Jugard means innovation, although it doesn't mean innovation to me, but it's sort of like grassroots level innovation. Many cultures have a word for this, you know, just something that that you kind of fix up to to solve an immediate need that you have. Okay, just small little little incremental innovations, right? So I often say that exponential innovation is very different from this sort of jugard innovation. And the, the way it's different is that this is disciplined. This is based in deep research. This is based in and grounded in scientific principles. So it's the, the kind of innovation that we're talking about is grounded in first principles. What are first principles? First principles are the basics of physics, of engineering, of, of, of sciences, depending on what, what science you're looking at. If you're looking at synthetic biology, for example, that's an exponential technology. Synthetic biology is grounded not only in principles of biology and genomics, but it's also grounded in, in, in principles of coding. And so, so again, First principles are very important when you're looking at this kind of audacity, this sort of bold thought. It has to work in the known universe that we all function in, first of all. Secondly, the need has to be very, very well defined. And how do we define a need? By defining failures or challenges. So we look at what are the market failures, what are the systemic failures? What are the governance failures that have occurred? Why does this problem exist? And then I love to probe, why does this problem persist? Because there are social reasons why certain problems are allowed to happen. And, you know, we, we are talking a little bit here about water as well. And water is one of those problems where, uh, yes, there are geographic reasons for water scarcity. The climactic reasons for, for furthering why, why, why water scarcity is becoming such an urgent issue of our time. But through the decades, there have also been socio-political reasons why water scarcity among certain populations have existed, right? So there are, there, there, there are reasons why problems not just exist, but why they are allowed to persist, because it works for a whole bunch of people. So anyway, so we unpack that. We, we really dive deep into understanding the need through the lens of the challenges that exist globally. And then when we design an innovation, design a real moonshot, we design parameters in there that will meet as many of those challenges as possible. 
So let's take this water abundance X prize, for example, that I just described. Well, in a lot of places, water is not abundant. It is not freely available. These were the three big issues with water. They're just three overarching issues. And then they trickle down into a million others, right? The first one is that it's water on our planet is not equally distributed. Fresh water. I'm talking about fresh water, right? So it's less than 2% of all the water on our planet is fresh water. The rest is tra trapped in ice, trapped in oceans, trapped in our atmosphere, right? With the majority of it being in, in oceans. So, and that, that fresh water isn't, isn't, uh, widely available because of, of where it is. What is available is not always accessible to everybody for a whole bunch of reasons, again, from sociopolitical to, to, to all kinds of others, right? And then what is accessed is often contaminated, right? So these are kind of the three overarching issues for water. So when we design this prize, we design to address some of these issues. What does an atmospheric water extractor uh, on the roof of your building in Nairobi or in Mumbai, a building that houses, that has about 10 stories, that houses about 100 people, you know, what, what, does, that, what does that do for you? Well, it makes water decentralized. Now, no longer do you need municipal pipes and municipal infrastructure to get the water you need. So it makes water decentralized. It makes fresh water on demand. It makes fresh water sustainable because we're doing this with renewable energy. And it makes it affordable because we have an affordability index in there. This cannot be more than two cents per liter, right? So again, we're addressing all these issues by saying, imagine, imagine a world where water Access to fresh water is on demand there when you need it, where you need it. It's completely decentralized and untethered from so often corrupt municipal systems or slow or faulty or, or contaminated municipal systems. And it is affordable. And imagine if all that could be done in a highly sustainable way. So we imagine a preferred future state for water. And then we go about designing an audacious prize to achieve that. And how is it going? Because <laughs> <laughs> well, it's such a tremendous challenge. Uh, the process, it sounds like, to, from, from what I've looked at, is that you... you call out for individuals who are, or groups who are interested in engaging in the process. And then yes. you work together with them to build upon their strengths, whether they're technical or social Absolutely. or, and then, and, and together Absolutely. in a collaborative method, put together a team that is able to actually move forward in terms of addressing this challenge. Is that? That's is correct. That, yeah. That's correct. So before I get, get into some of those details, I want to point out one thing that's really important. When you're looking at moonshots, when you're thinking about this kind of big, great innovation, transformative innovations, um, you have to be solution agnostic in the sense that you cannot care where those solutions come from. We believe at XPRIZE that those solutions could take any form that those solutions can come from anywhere. And often we have found 
that it is not the experts who spend their time tinkering on stuff like this. It's ordinary people, people like us, people like you and I, people who just have a passion to solve a certain problem. That passion could be fueled personally. We hear stories, especially in our medical tricorder prize that is being awarded in the next couple of months, which again is a very interesting process and prize for innovation that goes out to the masses. You know, uh, some of our teams uh, applied because they had a wife or a mother with a serious condition that was left undiagnosed for too long, which led to their death. So, And some people just do it because they, they want to make a breakthrough in this industry. So we really believe that innovation can and will come from anywhere will come from the edges. We just have to let people know and incentivize them to bring us their best and craziest ideas. So that's the phase we are in now with the Water Abundance Prize. We are in uh, the first phase, which we call team recruitment, where we are out recruiting teams from around the world to sign up for uh, for this prize. The prize purse is $1.75 million. So it's about uh, $750,000 US dollars in milestone prizes and a million dollar final prize. And, um, you know, uh, Karen, I'm sorry, but we recently changed that. That was a mistake. It's $1.5 million for the final prize and $250,000 in milestone prizes. So I stand corrected there. Um, but but uh, we are calling out to innovators everywhere. We have oh, over 250 registrants right now. But usually, and this is human nature again, everybody waits till the last minute usually to pay the fee, <laughs> to pay the fee and, and sign up for the prize, you know. So we have a lot of registrants, but we only have about 20 plus fully uh, paid up teams right now. So we are in the process of converting those over the next month because the registration deadline for this prize is April 28th. I'm just I'm, I'm imagining this idea of it can come from anywhere and anybody can do it and you don't know what it's going to look like and it could take a form that is beyond the I don't know the scope of our wildest imagination um, because especially with water it's so it can be so broad I mean it can, yes yes and yes it can it's it's very exciting to think that maybe somebody who's working in stormwater or in wastewater or something is exactly some sort of tweak that could happen that would be applicable possibly in order to support this kind of innovation maybe that doesn't solve all of the problems but a different approach that could be brought in um, and how how do you encourage those broader both social social scientists and engineers to bring those ideas forward and, and start to think about how they can apply them in this context it's really it's really exciting Yes, it is. It is. And, you know, the, the, the teams, I think, that are successful uh, at, at taking an XPRIZE, you know, even if they're part of the winner's circle and not the final winner, but taking it to scale will be teams that are multidisciplined, that have the social scientists, that have uh, the policy and advocacy people on there, that have the fundraisers who have connections to BCs and, and angel groups, you know. So so the multidisciplinary teams to me is what who are going to be really successful in going to market. Because the real problem here is not 
not the 1.5 or 1.75 million dollars that you can win. The real prize here is the ability to really make significant change in a sector, to really open up brand new markets with this technology, to take this technology and take it to grand scale. When we did an early mapping of what the potential immediate market immediate market for this technology could be. We looked at a water scarcity map for 2020, 2022, you know, around that time. And we layered on top of that the um, um, people who are living um, under $8 to $10 a day. So like lower middle class in most countries. So we layered that on. And then we said, well, how many of these folks are living in the band on our planet, the naturally occurring band on our planet between the Tropic of Cancer and Tropic of Capricorn that has the most humidity? So 65% or over humidity. So that's what these water extractors will work best in, is, is the higher the humidity, the better that they're going to work. Why? Because there's more source material, right? I mean, there's more water to actually pull out of the air. So, and when we looked at that chart, we were astounded to find that there were over 680 million people today who could benefit from this technology if it was made really affordable. And I'm not talking about people in California. I'm talking about people who are living at the sort of middle to base of the pyramid. Yeah, $8 a day Globally. says a lot, yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's your rickshaw driver, your cabbies, your, you know, in, in most parts of the emerging world. You know, so so your, your laborers, uh, your small shop owners, or somebody who works in, in, in a store, you know, that, that class of uh, economic class of people. I'm wondering if you would be able to tell either a general or a water-related X-Prize story of innovation from start to finish so that um, even though you've, I think you've touched on how it works, how the process works, but being able to describe maybe one of the other X-Prizes and how that's um, been able to, from its, its just initial stages to its sort of final two market stages, if, if there is an X-Prize that's gotten all that, that absolutely far. absolutely sure and i would love to talk if yeah. there's anything that has impacted the asia pacific region that would also be um really certainly helpful. certainly certainly so so i would love to to tell you the story of of one of my favorite prizes that x prize which is um which is the the, the tricorder prize that it's a 10 million dollar qualcomm tricorder prize is what it's called uh, sponsored by qualcomm the tricorder is, um, are you a Star Trek fan? I don't know if your listeners are Star Trek fans. I, I think that some of them definitely are. <laughs> yep. Okay. So we're, we're all big sci-fi junkies at, at XPRIZE, as you can imagine. And we draw a lot of inspiration from science fiction. And I think to really, you know, take those moonshots, sometimes science fiction can provide a huge amount of inspiration. So in, in, if you've ever watched Star Trek, 
there's a doctor in in the series and his name is Bones and he's got this this thing called the tricorder and of course the series was shot in the fifth you know started in whatever the 50s 60s and so it was this big clunky remote uh, uh, like a device, you know, that he used to hold in his hand, and and uh, and it was called the medic, the the tricorder. And when you came off planet, for example, you know, when the crew came off planet, he'd he'd sort of scan your body for any kind of disease, or it was it was a device that would scan you and tell you whether you were well or not, whether you were human or not, or whether you were another species, were you alien or what, right? So so. Uh, we decided that, well, what, wait a minute, with the kind of exponential leaps happening in sensing technology today, with the big need in the world for medical diagnoses, why can't we recreate the tricorder? Can we do that? Can we truly recreate the tricorder today? So we launched a $10 million challenge for a medical tricorder. And the rules were fairly stringent, that it had to diagnose a certain amount of communicable and non-communicable diseases. So it had to take, you know, certain vital signs and it had to be non-invasive and it had to be something that fit in the palm of your hand. So something small, something that was stupid simple to use so that a mother in the middle of the night when her child was sick knew what was going on and knew whether they needed to go to the hospital or not. Another mother in in a village in sub-Saharan Africa could say, is my little girl, has my little girl got malaria or is this typhoid or is this pneumonia? Because in the first 72 hours, it all looks the same. Mm. The diseases, all three present as the same. And we all know that after 72 hours, the mortality rate for a child under 12 with malaria shoots through the roof, <laughs> through the roof. Yep. more than 70%, right? So again, it, could it be something that is so simple, so affordable, and so easy, easy to use, essentially, and accurate? So we launched this prize. And we embarked on this journey. This was a little over five years ago. And um, we are now at the stage of awarding the prize. And we are doing the awards on, on April 12th. And we have a winner circle. A few teams have achieved what we wanted them to achieve. We had teams apply from all over the world. There were over 300 teams that applied. And in the final circle, we have teams from everywhere. And so, for example, Team Dhanvantri from India, they designed a tricorder that was extremely affordable and that was very intuitive and could also be used by people with lower literacy levels. So, for example, you know, on the blood pressure monitors or on your heart rate or your oxygen levels, etc., they, they, the display, which is just on your smartphone, it just, you know, transmits the, the, the information because it's a teeny tiny little device, you know, with, with uh, loaded, chuck loaded with, with sensors. And, um, it, tra it transmits the information to your smartphone. And on your smartphone screen, they had little speedometers. Why? Because everybody in the world knows that green is good, yellow is caution, and red is danger, 
right? So they have little speedometers to say, yep, your blood pressure, here are your numbers, but here's where you're at. You know, you're in the green zone. You are okay. You know, so, so again, the Indian team designed for their market, the U S team designed for a different market, the European teams designed for their market. So again, uh, this could be a device that's used in a high-end ER, or it can be used in a village. Doesn't matter, you know? So, so as we're awarding this prize, what we have been working on, which we're also working on, by the way, for the, for the uh, Water Abundance X Prize, is we've been working on what we call advanced market commitments. So we are getting commitments from industry players to say that they will test this in their environment. And if it works, they will help that team take it to grand scale. So we are working in partnership with a hospital um, uh, in, in Mozambique. We are forging partnerships with other industry players around the world to, again, take this device and say, let's do clinical trials in your country and let's see what is the fastest route to market in your region, in your market. It's a five-year cycle to get this far as no, for the, for the tricorder, yeah, for the tricorder, it was a little over five. I think it's, it's going to end up at about six years. But in the process, we learned a lot of things. We learned that teams need investment along the way. We need to have milestone prizes or we need to bring investors to the table. We need to provide these advanced market commitments. We found out very early on where teams said, wait a minute, you want us to test this device, um, you know, on humans? Has anybody ever talked to the FDA about that? That's, That's not permitted. So we had to open up channels of communication with the FDA who were very receptive. And they, in fact, at one point during the prize, set up a helpline is dedicated to team members for for the Tricorder Prize to answer any regulatory questions that they might have that that pertain to human testing, you know. So so we had to open those channels of communication with with the government bodies. We had to do a lot of work behind the scenes to ensure that these teams are successful. I can imagine also for something like the Water Abundance Prize that you're going to want to make sure that the prototypes as they develop will provide water quality of a level and and certain maybe mechanisms for storing that water when it's not being used that keep it basically keep it clean contamination yeah 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 absolutely so absolutely so so here's where what we decided this is again in the process of innovation you decide what you want to incentivize and what you don't because we believe you get what you incentivize. So I made some very hard choices with my team about where we, what we would actually incentivize. So we decided not to incentivize storage solutions, not to incentivize purification, because there is so much already on market mm-hmm. that, that is you know, highly affordable that people are all already using. 
that those then can be added on and and you will know this that they're culturally relevant right and geographically relevant so you you know if you are dealing with a lot of arsenic in your water then you've got a different kind of purification need in in a certain geography if you're in the indo-gangetic plain bangladesh uh, so many other places now um but if you are just dealing with bacterial contamination and these this water will get contaminated. Why? Because imagine this, it's sitting in a storage device, it's moist, and it's sitting out in the hot sun. It's a perfect petri dish to grow all kinds of bacteria, you know? But we believe there are affordable, plentiful uh, storage and purification solutions on the market that just can be in a modular way attached to this particular device. Or even I'm thinking about public education as being a huge mm. component of the installation yes. of these sorts of systems. So, in the, you know, that's in a really good point. And how to run it, you want to learn how to keep everything clean and how to manage it. Exactly. So, exactly. And, and that was technical solutions. It's just getting people up to That's speed. right. That's right. So perception is a big deal, right? And we see that in the water and sanitation sector all the time, that perception is reality. And uh, how do you, so, so the, the one of the big challenges when we were unpacking the challenges around atmospheric water extraction, one of the big challenges that kept coming up again and again by people in the space who are already doing it is that people don't believe it can happen. People say, well, what do you mean? That's like magic. No, that cannot happen. And it's sort of like educating them to say, yes, it's like making rain in a box. That's what we're trying to do here. You know, breaking it down for them, educating them. That, so that hurdle of perception is extremely important. But then as you're, as you're saying, yeah, it has to be so simple that an unskilled semi-paratech kind of guy or woman can operate the system. You know, you turn it on. If this is broken, you you change that. And if that happens, you do this. You know, it has to be, again, that stupid simple to fix, to operate, and to maintain. Because otherwise, nobody's going to touch it. I think that there, it was, I wasn't sure if it was going to be possible. So I did a little bit of research looking at some of the actual extraction solutions that are out there. And I was amazed to find there is quite a bit of technology moving forward in that space. But what this, what this prize does is takes it to renewable energy and makes it affordable, yep. which is so different than what you're seeing currently. So exactly, it's, it's very exciting to be able to imagine what the next iteration of this technology is going to provide through something like this mechanism of the prize. That's right. And we already have teams signed up that are working on uh, all kinds of, of different solutions. So, so they're using nanotechnology to, to solve this problem. Uh, there's a team that's, that's using uh, geothermal energy to solve this problem. There's, you know, there, there are teams that have already signed up that already we can see that we're going to come, we're going to see a vast amount of, of, of new tech and different innovations sort of bundled, incremental and exponential bundled together, you know? I can see people, you know, playing a game or, you know, not riding a bike, but doing something like that. And then all of a sudden, the water comes right down. It's like, 
there, you can take this in so many different directions. It could be, that's uh, right. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. Yeah, it's going to be yeah. very exciting to see what emerges out of this whole process. Yeah, and you know, for those of us who've been immersed in the water sector for such a long time, it also plays upon the the fundamental truth that the the uh, that water and energy is just intricately linked and and uh and and you know if energy was free then perhaps water will be free and if water and energy are free then perhaps one day food will be free yes exactly. right <laughs> so was, and plentiful and abundant yeah that was the direction yeah. <laughs> my brain was going to i could just see people having small gardens coming out of nowhere almost with with the Absolutely. availability of water so the food water energy intersection culminates through a project like this exactly 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 yeah yeah um, <laughs> before we get to our closing question i'm wondering if there's anything else that you'd like to bring up or discuss while we have a chance um not not really any anything else that you may have no i'm 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 i think the only thing that i want to sort of pick apart a little bit more if you don't mind is this this concept of futuristic thinking and yes and you did discuss radical innovation exponential innovation but what what is futuristic thinking because this is something that i'm coming across more and more in mm. a lot of the the business entrepreneurial literature um and i'm hoping you can describe it from your perspective and your experience with futuristic thinking a little bit more certainly um so at xprize we've started doing uh, we started formalizing some of this. Uh, again, uh, we've been futurists since since the day we were we were born, and uh, we had our birth about twenty years ago in the space sector. Um, and so you can't you can't do any work in space and not not be a futurist in a lot of ways. Um, but recently, we launched an, the XPRIZE Institute, um, and the XPRIZE Institute is doing a lot of amazing road mapping work, road mapping the future of X, whatever X that might, that might be, the future of energy, the future of water, the future of housing, the future of our planet and, and our environment, for example. And uh, this is a new venture for, for us at XPRIZE. And uh, uh, myself and our, our chief scientist, uh, Paul Bungie, are, are leading this. And so we have been immersed in formalizing what future foresight looks like, right? What this kind of future think looks like and how do you actually do it and how do you do it not to be a Delphi, not to be, uh, you know, predicting the future, but more than anything, calling people to action and guiding a new holistic vision of the future in these different domains. So um, when you engage in this kind of work, uh, we are finding, because we're learning every step of the way, and we're wide open all the time, which is, again, part of this work. You have to be wide open to different ways of doing things, of new ways to pay attention to the market, pay attention to people's needs, pivot constantly. You have to be very agile in that way. So as, what we're realizing is you've got to have a very holistic approach when you do this kind of future think. You've got to... Um, um, Look at it from a social perspective. You have to look at it from a political perspective. You have to look at it from an economic perspective. 
from an ecological perspective or an environmental perspective. And then, of course, what we're very good at, which is the technological perspective. But it's not just any old technologies that we're looking at. We put the lens of exponential technologies on this. Exponential technologies, exponential business models, and different mindsets. So we just kicked off a roadmap for the future of housing, for example. And when you look at the future of housing, you have to think about, well, there's got to be new financial models other than just the mortgage industry to own a house. But then before you go there, you have to stop and think, well, wait a minute. What does own a house really mean for the world? Is that the way of the future? Is that the best model there is out there for the future? Where is ownership? Really? What does that mean? And in many cultures, that is not important at all, right? So, so again, it's like peeling the layers of an onion. So I would say that when you, when you do this work, you have to have a very, very holistic lens, but you also have to have your own point of view and your own perspective, because otherwise you're a spinning compass. You have to have your North Star. And for us, our North Star is big impact in the world, through technology, but also understanding that technology doesn't work alone unless you have change in governance and policy, which is extremely important, new business models, new economic models, and of course, an exponential mindset, a mindset of abundance. What do we mean by a mindset of abundance? A mindset that is all-inclusive, a mindset that sees the grandest challenges in the world as opportunities and not as challenges. Opportunities for innovation, opportunities for business and new markets, opportunities for engaging millions of people and opportunities to impact billions. That's, that's the kind of work that we're engaging in and that's the kind of thinking you need when you want to start thinking about the future. It's, it's really interesting because you think about road mapping for the future of anything and future foresighting, but you have at the same time all these contextual variables that need to Absolutely. be addressed. Absolutely. So you have a global future, maybe like the Sustainable Development Goals, for example. Right, um, but right. at the same time, you have to have these kind of contextual future yes. roadmaps at the same time that are suitable for different cultures Absolutely. And, and societies and different values and because right, and that, a, that are yeah. malleable, right? So, for example, so the way I, I see uh, talking about the future or, or uh, portraying the future in a certain sector. So let, let's, take, let's take food, for example, right? You know, we know but that by 2050, we will have to feed uh, 9.6 billion people on our planet. In order to do that, we're going to need 40% more more uh, land for agriculture. So the the 40% that we can really, really get to uh, is are, are, are the rainforest. Yeah, I mean, there, there are all these awful things about about yeah. that number, right? You know, so we have to do it differently. So the way I see uh, talking about the features is to show what business as usual looks like. And then to show that preferred state of the future in different stories set in different parts of the world. So uh, what does it look like for a woman who has lived 
in uh, a slum in Mumbai for, for many, many generations. And now this is her first foray into a permanent housing. Nobody in all her generations have lived in permanent housing, right? Going, going back three or four generations, let's say, when they migrated from the village. What does that mean? What does the future of housing look like for her? And what was her journey to get there? What policy had to change? What construction materials had to change? You know, what, what new models of ownership or, or, or financing needed to change for her to get there? And then do the same thing in Europe, do the same thing in, in Southeast Asia, do the same thing in Japan. Tell five or six stories that are different and yet are congruent paths. And then pick out those moonshots, those leaps that needed to happen for this preferred state of the future to occur in these different areas. That's how I see talking about the future. And there's a big reason behind that, not just because of you have to, you know, you have to explain it in a very holistic way. The main reason is because people relate to people. People relate to stories about other people. So we need to tell that story and then tell the story of the journey backwards. It's called backcasting. You know, what that people preferred future state is? And then what did it take to get there? What were the steps that were needed? And then that roadmap that illustrates all of these steps becomes a call to action for the world, becomes a call to action for government to say, okay, here are the specific things I can do. A call to action to people working in material science to say, okay, well, here are the things that we need to be working on you know, to get to that particular state, etc. Does that make sense? Yes. And uh, it's interesting, because I've, I've actually been speaking with a previous Kinney interviewee about forecasting, um, uh -huh. for, for um, bringing together people from the food and water sector, so that we can start to form some, basically some shared vision around what a water secure and food secure future would look like. But taking that future perspective and then backcasting would be very complementary to that process. So it's it does make Absolutely. a lot of sense. And I'm Absolutely. I'm also yeah. thinking about like the you know, you have the the vision, but at the same time you have these again, because you are an expert in technology, you have 3D printers coming. They can print yes. houses. They're printing houses yes. in Mexico. I mean, yeah, it's just you know printing the right houses, making sure there's something That's that right. people really want to live in, and right. the opportunities are just yeah, it's 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 limitless. It's exponential. <laughs> I'm going to use that. It is exponential, now. and it is limitless, and it is extremely exciting. And you know, today you really don't need to have a particular background or a you know study a particular discipline unless you want to be quite narrow you know today this is the beauty of the world we live in today you know anyone can partake in this work i'm not saying it's easy and you know breaking into into any industry is not easy no matter where you are mm -hmm. okay but 
you don't need, look at the convergence we're talking about, energy, water, food, waste. Look at the technology convergence we're, uh, convergences we're talking about, you know, genomics and computer science and, 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 and sensing all kind of rolled into one and, uh, and, and you know, uh, and biology and creating, creating new, um, new synthetic life forms, really, you know. Uh, so all of this convergence on our planet of knowledge, of information, and this, this vast reach that we're having with this knowledge and information, you know, three billion people who will come online in the next decade or so, you know, although the predictions are for that to happen a lot quicker than that, but, but I'm a little more skeptical. So, uh, but again, imagine what they're going to, to have in terms of ideas and, and failures and and risks that they're all going to take it's it's truly an exponential time that we live in we live in amazing times and so you don't have to be an expert in one thing or another you just have to have the passion for change so that brings me it's a really good segue to my closing question which is about how can people engage in educating themselves or becoming more proactive to support the kinds of ideas that we've been discussing over the past hour. And I mean, it could be as much as informing oneself, what books would you recommend that they read? Or, you know, if there's, if there's certain areas of knowledge that are particularly useful to kind of start to think about and get into um, any sort of advice or skills or trainings or relationships or anything. Um, what would you recommend for people who've just listened to our conversation and are really excited about some of these ideas and want to maybe direct their careers in that way or just really engage in that space? Right, right. So uh, I think today it's all about self-education because there, for some of this work, there is no formal path. You know, you can you can be a physics major and you, you know, and, and you now no longer see a formal path for yourself where you or can the, be, the path you know, doesn't exist yet. That's the way I the path doesn't exist you are, yet. You're yes. making the path. Yes, yes correct. Yeah. You are forging that path. But, you know, you're really also so you've been you've been studying uh, the, the, the sciences and but but you're also really interested in development issues, for example. Right. But you're interested in more of a future perspective. You've got to start self-educating so you have to start filling your own gaps and knowledge with the amazing tools we all have at our fingertips in our smart devices you know our our, our uh, tablets and our phones and our computers of course and so I read a lot of blogs I subscribe to a few blogs uh, and then and I, I keep subscribing to new ones but if I'm not quite getting what I want from them then I unsubscribe quickly so I, I keep my inbox limited to about three or four blogs that I don't have the time to read every day, but they usually do a nice recap over the weekend. You, some of them do it on Friday, some of them do it on Monday, and then that's what I try to catch up on. Um, through those blogs, you also then start learning about different writers that you like or different scientists or different innovators that, that you like, and then you can start following their work a little more, and you you know, you know peel the layers of the onion and go uh, dig a little deeper. Right now on, on my screen, what comes across on my screen daily is uh, uh, Futurism. I read their blog. Uh, I read TechCrunch uh, to understand because I'm not, I don't 
have a formal uh, education in science or technology or engineering. So I have to go back to first principles a lot of the time. The way I understand the world or I understand new technology is is by going to the computer and, and you know, going to Wikipedia or going to, to whatever is out there to learn what the first principles are. So I can understand the fundamentals. And then if I understand the fundamentals, then I can see what this could do in the future. And I have a background in international development. Uh, it's where I've spent a lot of my career. I've spent a lot of my career working with people for people, um, helping them design for themselves, uh, uh, grassroots level technologies. Uh, um, and so I understand how people will adapt and adopt uh, these technologies, you know, so so that's a really good framing for me to have. So I look at exponentials, I study first principles, uh, I read the Singularity University uh, bl blog every week, the Singularity Hub. Uh, Peter puts out a really good blog as well. Uh, that, so there are many futurists who put out some good work, but then there's a lot of technologists who put out that work. And then I, I sort of look at it and I take what I like, but then I relate it to my field and my experience. I ground it in what I know of the world, which, frankly, is the international development sector. And I go, well, you know what? If I had that 10 years ago when I was working in Zambia or wherever, you know, uh, well, I could have done this differently or this this is great, but it's not going to trickle down. It's not going to be accepted by the people I have worked with in my career. You know, both both on the you know the development professionals and the 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 end customer, the end user themselves. You know, so then you adapt it to what you know and your context. So it's a lot of your own self reflection and analysis. This is what I mean by self learning. Go out, grab the nuggets that you need, but then you've got to frame it in the context of what you know the most about or are most passionate about if you are just starting out. Excellent. And do you have a blog at all that you write that others oh, could read? Because I would be I very interested. <laughs> I really should. Oh, you know, yes. I, it's the problem of time. I, you know, I, I, I try to engage my audience on Twitter, but I'm not very good at it. I'm completely intimidated by Facebook. And I, I, uh, by, by intimidated, I just mean in terms of the time that it would take, you know, to, to so engage. I wish <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to engage, but I do put stuff out. I just did a, a, a blog on uh, for World Water Day on why water needs a moonshot uh, for Huffington Post. Uh, and then it, it's, it's on our website uh, at XPRIZE. I'm writing as we speak. The deadline is Sunday, but I'm writing a blog for day. DevX, uh, you know, the big development yes. platform. Yes. Uh, so so um, I'm starting to do a little bit for them. There's some video blogs on DevX. I did a talk on exponential development, what, what that means for the world, for DevX world last year, uh, and th what that means for our sector, for the development sector. Um, and I'm writing a blog, like I said, uh, on the future of cities for DevX. So really trying to give a different perspective on what cities might look like by 2050. 
thanks to the advance of, 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 of it, uh, not just exponential technologies, but also um, of, of how people are starting to think and, and realize that they need to sort of in, in this hyper digitized world that that we will actually in the future go back to being fairly analog in our need for for being with those we love. To physically be those yeah. Thank you so much, Zenia, for your time and your stories, and and really thank you for the inspiration for the future. I, I I feel like my the world I live in is a better place after speaking with you, and I want to really thank you for that. <laughs> thank you. And I believe that every day. <laughs> in the in the world of water, I think we face so much doom and gloom, and just to be able to say yes. it doesn't have to be like that. We can have a shared vision the possibilities yes. are beyond our even realm of imagination and be okay with that Absolutely. and sit with that and embrace that is just, it, it really Absolutely. does. Yeah. It does make it. Hopefully next year we're kicking off a roadmap for environment and our planet uh, uh, later this year. And hopefully next year we will do, uh, you know, these roadmaps are all going to merge together at some point too. So hopefully next year I want to do one in, in food and water. And, and look at food, water, and energy and that nexus and waste, which is a very big part of that, too. And with these roadmaps, as they come out, are they something that gets into academic literature or is this something that XPRIZE uh, releases as, as, a, as a document or an interactive sort of or a video or how, how exactly? Can... Oh, wow. Yeah. The million dollar question. No, 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 no. It's a lot of things. We're going to be putting out a lot of thoughtware. So a lot of thought leadership, uh, you know, that we'll keep trickling out with infographics. We're just getting started right now at the XPRIZE Institute. It's something that literally we established this year. So there'll be infographics and then and then there'll be, of course, deeper information and research. We're also going to be conducting labs in different parts of the world with experts. And we're going to use new techniques like science fiction prototyping and scenario planning for the future and, and engage people in very out-of-the-box thinking. Um, and, and then we're going to publish these roadmaps and, and they will be multimedia and they are very distinct calls to action, which means that they've got to get out far and wide. And uh, hopefully at some point we'll do some of it uh, in, in, in virtual reality in the future. So you can really put that headset on and experience the future and interact with it. But immediately it's going to be much more in, interactive on the web. So there will be different pathways that you can, you can you know, with your touch screen, you can go down different rabbit holes, if you will, to unravel what the future, uh, you know, in that scenario looks like. So yeah, this is for the world. This is not for us. We're a nonprofit. This is for the world. This is exciting. And I think um, this is going to rattle the cages of some others um, who it's going to push people out of their comfort zone. I'm really looking forward to seeing this happen. (laughs) Yes. Yes, we hope so. But then we hope to kind of bring them back to an aha moment, you know, and uh, where they can say, yes, but yes, and, you know, yeah, and I'm engaged. And, yeah. and through your process of backcasting as well. So what, yeah. what are the steps that need to happen in order to get to that, that vision, exactly. visionary future? I think that's, right. uh, that's the best way to go. <laughs> 
you should come to one of our labs sometime. I would love to. Um, just okay. let me know when they put are. You, I will be there. <laughs> yeah, I'll put you on the list. I think we're ha- going to have one in uh, either Montreal or Toronto on the on the future of housing, which is very tied with the future of resources on our planet. You know, so uh, I'll invite you for sure. Fantastic. Great. Well, thank you. I'm going to stop. So thank you. I'm going to stop the recording now. Here we go. Kini is an initiative of the Australian Water Partnership and the International Water Centre Alumni Network. Kini connects water managers and shares knowledge throughout the Asia-Pacific. Visit our website at kini.org.au for more information and for videos, articles, news and more.